This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we are going into the danger zone. You mean Top Gun? We've booked Tom Cruise on the show? Yes, right, because Tom Cruise would talk to us. <laughs> we're not even Scientologists. <laughs> today, we're talking about what might be the world's most dangerous wine. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we'll tell you about one seriously dangerous wine and how they make it. We have some updates on sulfates and questions from listeners about the etiquette of swirling your wine and about drinking wine you don't want. Plus, as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're loaded with news, including some info on the world's most dangerous wine. Is it made from blowfish? Paul, that's, that's sushi. Ah, uh, well. Uh, blowfish wine would be rough. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is an interesting story, and, and it really is a little bit harrowing. It's, uh, it's a wine that is made in northwest Syria. Mm-hmm. Domaine de Bargillis is mm-hmm. what it's called. Mm-hmm. It's owned by two brothers, Sandro and Karim Sadeh. They're yep. 38, 41, both the two of them. They're Syrian Lebanese. They're both countries. The brothers are based in neighboring Beirut, though. They live in Beirut because mm-hmm. neither one of them has set foot on the estate in four years. Wow. And the reason is they it's too risky. One, yeah. they, they would be targets, and then the roads are very scary, and they'd be kidnapped right. by militants or brigands or you know right. all kinds of things. Right. Uh, so some of the problems this the winery has is that um, the vineyards have been hit by mortars from ISIS. Mm-hmm, and, um, mm-hmm, there have been mm-hmm. a number of firefights around the vineyards, often yeah. not in them, but around them. Yep. And it's really just not a safe place to be. And it's ironic because this is one of the birthplaces of wine. Right? This is one of the oldest places that you can trace the roots of wine back to. Yeah, and that, that's true. You know, we it's always it always is surprising to people that there's wine in the Middle East, but wine came actually from the started Middle East, there. Right? So, yeah, in Iraq, absolutely in, in Iran. That's where wine was born. Yeah. So, so what the brothers do is they they have local workers. They mm-hmm. pay them in dollars, uh, so that's something of value. I mean, of, right. of, you know, more substance. And they're it's you know just goes to show for you know we tend to see the headlines about the combat and we forget that you know people there's many many people there. that just that are just regular folk. Then yeah. and their workers are Muslim and Alawis and Christians. They all get along. They're fine. They of just course. they got a job. You know that's of all course. it is. But what I like is what they say is the tricky part, as is just like living there is not tricky. You know, right? right. The tricky part is in late September and October, right? Harvest when the brothers and their consultant—they have a French wine consultant—need to taste the grapes to decide when to pick. Right. Uh, and so right. here's what they do: they they put the they pick some fruit, you know, and they yeah they sample, s- stick it on ice. Uh huh. They put it in a taxi. Yeah. And then that poor taxi driver tries to take it across the border to uh, yeah, Beirut. Yeah. How much do you get paid as a taxi driver? I to, hope a to lot. To carry some fruit yes. like that. So, and it takes like four hours. Oh, man. If nothing goes wrong. Right. But lots of times the border's closed. There's a firefight. There's some mortars. Yeah. There's brigands. Sometimes oh, the man. taxi disappears, so they do it again. Uh, and then the taxi doesn't disappear that often. But uh, And then once they finally have picked, and now it takes them months to bring the bottles and corks and the labels from where they sure. buy them, which is in France. Sure. Then they make the wine, you know, basically ferment it, and they box it up, which is really in bags. And they t- it takes 45 days or so to get it through to Egypt, to get it out of a dock in Egypt and then into a warehouse in Antwerp. 
hmm. per, and that's in, that's in Belgium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they actually make uh, about four thousand cases. They're mainly Syrah with Cabernet Merlot. Make some sort of these whites. They say are very pale, very yeah. bright. Yeah. It's a mix. It's Chard and Sauvignon Blanc of the two. The wines sell for like twenty eight to thirty six euros, which yeah, is about thirty two to forty dollars. I guess yeah, would be yeah. a good guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know they're they're in Paris and Britain and Dubai, and they're trying to open the market in the U.S. Well, you know there is a quite a famous wine from Lebanon called uh, Chateau uh, Musar. And the owner of that chateau, I have heard him speak, and he talks about when they pick the grapes, if stuff goes wrong, if there's any sort of uh, ordinance going off anywhere around, one of the things they have to do is they have to sort through the grapes before they put it in the crusher to make sure there's no shrapnel in the grapes because it would destroy the machinery. A very different kind of hand sorting, but I suppose they could just use a metal detector. (laughs) (laughs) So, man, that's a hard way to make a living. Here's our new wine equipment. It's we just we got this from the uh, TSA. It's a metal. Detector. <laughs> <It's a> metal <laughs> detector. <laughs> yeah, oh man, these poor people. Oh no, kidding. Um, yep. uh, all right, we. Uh, so that's the world's most dangerous. The wine. world's most dangerous wine. Although yeah. it's not dangerous to drink it, it's just dangerous to make. Unless it. they didn't sort it so well. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Yeah, right. But there are no blowfish. Right. All right. Uh, speaking of dangers, or rather the lack thereof, we bring up our friend sulfite. Ah, yes, because on every bottle of wine sold in America, there is a little sticker that says contains sulfites. And on every bottle of wine sold in the European Union, there is no sticker. And why is that, Paul? Because, and Americans think that's because the wine in America has been adulterated with sulfites and the wine in Europe has not. But in fact, it's the same wine. It's just different government regulations. It's a labeling thing. It's the same reason that in England, all of the bakeries have a big sign that says nuts and nut oils are used in this establishment, and they don't have that sign up in bakeries in America. It's not because the British use nuts and we don't. It's because somebody got a law passed. Well, speaking of nuts, uh, it's this common belief that sulfites cause headaches. And pain. And, and pain, yes. yes. But whom would you consult to find out about this? Well, I Rick? would look to the Journal of Head and Face Pain. <laughs> There is one. Yeah, I'm sure there I is. I swear I'm to you, I'm surprised I haven't done an article yes, on this show. It's, they, they, they. <laughs> what they do is they, they, uh, they collect information from you know various studies around uh, around the U.S. Uh, on stuff like this. So this is um, the Journal of Head and Face. Pain. Yeah, I, I'm yeah, I actually. Great... I just I looked this up because I like the name <laughs> basically. Yeah, of course you did. Um, but here's what they say, uh, that even people with asthmatic sulfite sensitivity, remember it's asthmatic, sulfites have, been not, have not been shown to cause headaches. Right. It's a respiratory thing. This is, I'm quoting right. them now. Sulfites were once leaked to headaches after wine ingestion. Well, they're talking in science. However, most of this belief is either speculative or, in fact, wrong, since the food and wine preservative sulfur dioxide, SO2, generally called sulfite, Although present wines is much more existent in common foods that do not trigger headache attacks, right. such as dried fruit, fruit, nuts, cured meats. I also added, because these are also higher than in wine, yes. snack foods. Yes. That Twinkie, my friends, is worse for you than a glass of wine. Canned and jarred sauces. So when you buy spaghetti sauce on the supermarket, more sulfite than in a bottle of wine. Yep. Baked goods. And most specifically, salad bars. Salad bars. That was the initial issue. Yeah. Salad bars and dried fruit. You buy, you eat a bag of dried apricots, you're getting way more sulfites than you'll ever get from a glass of wine. Yeah. Uh, and they also went on to say that uh, recently produced organic wines contain lower levels of sulfites because sulfur, sulfur or SO2, is sometimes used either as a preservative or to kill bacteria. Mm-hmm. The lower levels are not significant, they say. However, 
there has been uh, the persistence of headache triggering potential remains exactly the same. In addition, published literature has not yet established any link between the presence of sulfite and headache. No, what gives you the headache is you drink two and a half bottles of wine and the next day you have a headache. Wait. It starts to make sense. <laughs> Paul, you're throwing me. <laughs> All right. So having said that, yeah, we get to this. There are, you know, like there's something called wine away, which is actually a great little thing. And there's a handful of these kinds of products that if you spill wine on your shirt or the Can couch. Can you give it to small children? The wine away? The wine away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now that's a different one. It's a, that's, that does, this one does not have an H, um, although I think, I think we call those things uh, fruit. Uh, food boxes or juice boxes. That's juice we call boxes, wine with H away. Um, <laughs> but there are these products now that that will um, that will take out the sulfite. Yes. So. Yes. Now let's talk about why the sulfites are there. Why don't we? The sulfites are there for the same reason that sulfites are on the apricots, the dried apricots, and on the salad bar and everything else, which is sulfur dioxide prevents oxidation. You know when you slice an apple? I do. And it turns brown I've within seen seconds? Yep. Well, if you put a little SO2 on that apple, it won't turn brown because the SO2 is a chemical that actually eats the oxygen. Um, that's not a chemical turn. It doesn't actually eat the I, oxygen. I thought I heard little munching sounds yeah, now and then. But it yeah. does interact with yeah. the oxygen and prevents the oxygen from making the fruit go brown. And when you take the sulfites out of wine, you frequently get a wine that oxidizes more quickly. It turns brown and loses its freshness and its life more quickly. Right. Having said that, you're now going to tell me about a couple of devices that take the SO2 Well, I also want to point out that, that sulfur dioxide, SO2, is also part of the natural process. When you ferment grapes, yes. that is one of the byproducts. One of the things that forms yeah. it, is It just SO2. comes out. It's yes. in there. And if you'd like a full chemical explanation of that, go please talk to someone at UC Davis and don't talk to us. Don't, yeah. we if don't you want science, although we're about to give you a little, um, you, uh, <laughs> we aren't your guys. Uh, so there's some products now. There's a handful of products because somebody will buy anything. <laughs> right. And because there are those stickers on those bottles. Yeah. And so one product is called SO2 to go. And the other is just the wine. Uh, yeah, good. Okay, um, right. Which, uh, you know, anyway. Yeah. Uh, you put them in your wine. The SO2 to go, uh, SO2 to go is what it is, uh, is, right. is a couple of drops, just the wine, a couple of sprays. Right. And Wired, the magazine Wired uh, did a story to, uh -huh, and uh -huh. examined this. And the good news the guy said was that neither seemed to affect the taste of the wine. Not because they were pretty mediocre wines that he well, had. Well, and, and not only that, but he drank them immediately. And he drank if them immediately. You were to, if you were the sort of person, and Rick, I know you have a hard time relating to this, but if you were the sort of person who might drink a bottle of wine over, say, three days, this stuff will, in fact, <laughs> Three <affect>. days? <laughs> Jeez, three hours. Three, <laughs> three minutes is more my target. Right, but if yeah. you're the sort of person who might leave a bottle half-opened on your counter for a couple of days, this stuff oh, will pretty much absolutely. make it go to well, sleep Well, and in a here's hurry. what the stuff is, by the way. It's hydrogen peroxide. Right. Now, now hydrogen peroxide is in lots of stuff, and according to—I I had to go look this up— the National Poison Center— <laughs> <laughs> to yes. see how poisonous hydrogen peroxide well, you've is. you've been busy. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, they shouldn't give me a computer. <laughs> uh, in any case, it turns out the National Poison Center says that most contact with household-strength hydrogen peroxide is relatively harmless. Right. I mean, so they sell this stuff yeah. that you can put on cuts and things. Yeah, so if you've got to bottle that stuff on, you put it on your cut, and it, it, you actually swig it. It's not. Gonna, it's not gonna, <laughs> right. How you would do that, I don't know. Now, there's another, there's another way these two chemicals come into interaction in the wine business, Rick which is that, remember our old friends, the wine corks? 
wine corks develop they can develop um, mold on them if they're not stored properly. And if you get wine cork with a mold on it and then you put it into the bottle, the bottle can taste like mold. Sure. So So one of the things that wine cork companies have done as part of their treatment of corks is that they have covered the corks with uh, sulfur dioxide, sulfites. And that keeps anything from growing on them. But then... When you put those into the bottle, you're adding the sulfur level to that. And so they also might add a little bit of peroxide to to eliminate the SO2. And when you do that, then you can oxidize the wine. So basically, those two chemicals together need to be in balance. And once you start changing the balance of your wine, good things will not happen. Yes. Uh, I don't mess. So there's one other product. It's called an ULO, U-L-L-O. Okay. And it's a little filter that you put on your over your over your glass and pour the wine through it. And it is, uh, <laughs> it, 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 in essence, is supposed to have polymers that bond with the SO2 and take the SO2 out, but not the other stuff, although it takes some stuff out. And a quote to the ULO, it returns your wine to its natural state, which I might argue means it should have SO2 in it to be in its natural state. Well, here's state. another option, which is, you know, the easy, what is hydrogen peroxide? It's basically a way to... to well, this is not. This one doesn't have hydrogen. No, no, this I understand. Just, yeah. But what I'm saying is that the common that that combination is the same. SO2 fights oxygen. If you have too much SO2, you can add oxygen, and those two will interact, and they will neutralize each other. If you have too much oxygen and you add SO2, you will. So here's the solution: when you want to get, if your wine, if you feel your wine has too much SO2, too many sulfites in it, all you need to do is aerate it. Pour it into a decanter, slosh it around a little bit, and the increased oxygen will get rid of the SO2. Which it's is that Which is often the case when you have a wine that feels like it's, it, we call it closed, but it means it hasn't opened up. Just, just aerate it. Right. Well, and... Uh, but uh, I, I just, can I sell that idea? Because these guys are making yes, money on this stuff. You should sell something that uh, you, where you, it, a large thing we can pour wine into. It would be a decanter. Yes. Well, then so much of that. All right. <laughs> well, we have no other original ideas, but we will take questions in just one moment when we come right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it is time to take questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask us a question, you can go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine, we spell out and, or look for us on iTunes, and you can subscribe for free, one little itty-bitty click. If you're new to us, by the way, you might want to know what qualifies us to be answering questions. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, I need some SO2 or some. I need some sulfites or something to answer that question. Yeah, I, I've, I've. It's apparently we've had too much uh, SO2. So oh, maybe, but, I mean, maybe yeah. it's just because we cause headaches. Well, and that, and, and there is that. <laughs> um, we do. We certainly do that. Um, and and uh, Paul has actually been causing headaches around the wine industry for for a very long time. <laughs> right. He also answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches at places like Napa Valley College and the Culinary Institute of America, and in various spots around the world. And Rick has been giving people headaches as the wine wine commentator on Capital Public Radio and writing books about the barefoot spirit and other New York Times best-selling books. So, gosh, we've been giving headaches to people all over the place. Uh, yes, we have. And this question is an interesting question that is another kind of a headache. It comes from our, a friend uh, named Jane McCloskey in Sacramento. Okay. She says, I have an etiquette question. 
Okay. I was, at a, I was at a nice taco place with two friends who asked about beer. And the place said they may have run out of mugs. Then they came back with three giant mugs. There's three of them there. And it said they were charging the regular price because that was all they had. So they're giving a deal on the, on the beer. On the beer. Problem for Jane was, as she said, I've been planning to get a glass of wine. So my question is, can I say I don't want that? And then that sometimes happens with wine, too, when someone orders a bottle for the table and it isn't something I want. What do you say? Yeah. So those are two questions. Yeah. That's not one question. Well, the first question is a restaurant comes over, friends want to order beer, they bring them three mugs of beer, and she says, you know, you never asked me what I wanted, and I don't want beer, I want wine. And at that point, the restaurant takes the giant mug of beer away and brings her a glass of wine, and everything's fine, and that's a perfectly legitimate etiquette thing to do. Absolutely. Even though the restaurant was being nice. They were being nice. But it's, the, you know, you didn't, you know, if they brought you a taco and you wanted a burrito. Yeah, it's like your aunt who gives you that wonderful plaid sweater with the reindeer on the front. She's being nice, but you'll probably exchange it at the store, and that's okay. Yes. Well, if they take it back, because that has got <laughs> that so plaid reindeer. Yeah, the, yeah no, they'll pay. They'll pay you to leave. Is what they'll do. But the other question is, if your father-in-law is taking y'all out to dinner and he orders a bottle of wine for the table and you don't like the wine, your job is to say thank you very much. Yeah. 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 Once again, that that completely depends on the situation. If you're out with a bunch of friends and they didn't ask uh, you your opinion. You say, "Hey, what am I, chopped liver?" But if, well, you, if but if somebody's if being generous, or if buying each person you, is paying their own way, yeah. then you get to order what you want. Right. But if somebody's buying dinner for the crowd, they get to choose. Now, if they were properly raised, they would say, "I was thinking about getting this wine. Would that be? Would people like that?" Um, and then you have the awkward decision to make as to whether you say, "Ooh, I hate that." Or you can say, I'd really like something else. Or you can just be quiet and say, that'll be fine for now. Yeah. I mean, if you're in their house and they serve you dinner and they give you wine with the dinner, you don't say, I really don't like this wine. Could I have something else? You just drink it. Yeah. You know, it's, there's a funny thing about restaurants, too, and we've talked about this in the past, which is, you know, everybody gets a menu, but not everybody gets but a wine one list. They only give you a wine list. list, which is basically saying one person choose. And right. um, if the person is aware enough to ask... Uh, you know, it, that's a tough one. I also want to go back to the beer thing, too, which is this, that we, we have this feeling like when somebody's nice to us in a restaurant, we then need to just be quiet. But remember, you're paying. Right. You're paying. Even if they're giving you a deal, you're still paying. Right. Have I got a deal for yeah. you? I'm going to give you two blowfish yeah, for the price of one. <laughs> don't be a jerk, a.k.a. wine snob-like person uh, uh, in dealing with the restaurant in any way. Right. But, but it, it is okay to ask for what you want. That's it's okay why to you say, to I'd do. really prefer wine, not beer. Could I take a look at what you have by the glass? They won't have a problem with that. Right. And when you and I go out and we split the tab, we each get to order and drink what we want. All right. I got another one. Uh, this one is from Hector in Pleasanton. Ooh. He says, what do you guys think of box wines? Boxing wines? Yes. That's the wines that pack left, left jabs they and pack, right, right crosses. Uh, yeah. Wines that come in boxes. Again, going back to our conversation in an earlier show about corks and screw caps, the plastic bag in a box is actually a pretty functional way to store wine for a short period of time. And by a short period of time, I mean like six months. Not a great way to age wine for 20 years. This is not what you'd want to do with your Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. But if you're just drinking wine, you're buying a, a, a wine, and you want to have a glass a night for three or four or five nights, box wines are a really good solution because as the wine comes out of the box, 
the bag shrinks, no air gets in, and you don't have to adjust the sulfite level in your wine there you go. just yes. to drink the well, wine. You can just drink a glass by glass and piece of cake. And the next part of that is, is there are plenty of totally good box wines out Very there good. on the market. In fact, um, as uh, I was uh, for a few years the chief judge of State Fair Commer- Commercial Wine Competition, still am a judge, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, just uh, two years ago, the the best Riesling in California uh, was a box wine. Came in a Box. Yeah, came in yeah. Back in box. and box wines. Even this year, I'm looking at some of the results. The there were a handful of, of big gold medals for for box wines. So you know, it, it's box wines are like everything else. They're running down on a um, you know on the lower end of the price scale. But you're paying for one of them. Is you're not you're paying much less for packaging. So you, you right. have a very good chance to get more wine. Plus, you know, if you're if Something you can keep in the fridge. It's they're they're totally fine. They're great yeah. for things like camping as well. They're great for camping. They're great for parties, um, and they're really good for a single person living at home who wants to have a decent glass of wine every once in a while and doesn't want to open a new bottle every night and have it. I, I go through one box. In, in, you in go an through evening. a box in an evening. Four, four of course, the boxes you buy are the little eight ounce boxes. Those are juice boxes. Those aren't wines. That right? would explain. That would explain. <laughs> it explains so much. All right, uh, we are, we're going to take one more question uh, before cool. we. Uh, before we finish the first half of our show. And this one comes from Mary Lou in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. She says, I went to visit my friend in Portland, and both restaurants she took me to had almost zero Oregon Pinot Noirs. Wow. She said, most of the cooler places have only a few Oregon wines. Remember, Mary lives in San Francisco. She oh, says, yes. it's the same thing in the city. I hardly ever see a Napa cab at the trendiest places unless it costs like 200 bucks. It seems like they're all, they all shy away from local or California wines, even the alleged farm-to-fork restaurants. Her term is alleged. It's just because the wine guys are all trying to show how big their corkscrews are. <laughs> well, well, the answer to that question is very simple. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <clears throat> yes, it is exactly what people are trying to do because in a local form movement, uh, which has swept the nation and everybody's talking about eating and drinking locally, why would you not have the local wines? Again, if you go to Burgundy and look at a wine list in Burgundy, you will not find wines from Alsace or Bordeaux, let alone from other countries. If you go to a, a, a wine region in any other wine-producing region of the world, you'll be served a, handed a wine list that is 95 to 100% wines from that region. Only in California do you go to a wine list where the very hip, cool sommelier hands you a wine list that has not a single wine from the local yeah. producers. And it is – this is a symptom. We talk about this so often. Wanting it's the, to it's, be so cool. And you know, part of it is also trying to stand out, right? So you don't yeah. stand out by yep. serving or, or by carrying wines that are, that are easy to carry. Well, in fact, but I want to raise – your customers like you. I want to raise a point here because you and I both know Shelley Lindgren down at a Yes, yes, we love her. A restaurant that focuses on a specific region of Italy, and her wine list is exclusively from that region. Absolutely fair game there. That's a legitimate approach. But if you're, you know, if you've got a normal bistro in downtown Sacramento, the fact that you don't have a single wine from from California on your wine list primarily says your sommelier is an idiot. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking because it also tells you something else. If you're visiting. And coming to San Francisco, a very touristy town. Yes, uh, you to want experience one. the local cuisine exactly. And, and if you get told that your best bet is a Gruner Veltliner from Austria, right? And same thing with going to a uh, a restaurant in Portland is yes. that you know you would Absolutely. be you're going there because you want that. You're you're that's what you're looking for is Oregon Pinot Noir. Yeah, and yep. uh, and honestly, it. Um, 
No it, excuse. It, it, yeah, n- there's no excuse for no that. Excuse. There's, there's, uh, unfortunately, there's, there's lots of explanations. And so, um, Mary, what you should do is when you go to a place like that, you should say, you know, I, I really would love to see something local. How come your wine's not local like your food? And, you know, the Michigan State Wine Commission has a wonderful little business card that they hand out because Michigan makes some good wines. And all of its members, if they eat at a restaurant that has no Michigan wines, they just leave the business card behind. It says, lovely local food. Wished I could have had a local wine. Oh, I like that one. I like that one. one. All right. That's it for questions and for the first half of our show. When we come back, we're going to have some really horrible wine writing. Wine writing. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Such joyful sounds, such a tragic subject coming up. That subject is really horrible wine writing. Oh, yeah, and I got a word for us today. How about a wine that is limber? Ooh, ooh, so it, work, it works out as stretches. It probably does some Pilates. No, you know what I hear is I hear a mambo soundtrack in the background, and I see the glass working its way down the bar and oh. trying to duck the bowl of the glass underneath a straw. I've, oh, it's oh. doing the limbo. Yeah, right? a, lim- a, lim- a limbo wine. A limbo wine. wine. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I have can no see, idea what I, it I means. I can see that wine. It's... Um, it trains hard, though. It trains it, it must. Another or, one. Or maybe it's just had too much to drink. You know, you've been bringing in these words that I, ha- I you know, when I see them, I mean, sometimes we like, can roll our eyes and guess. Right. What is this? No clue. No clue. No clue. No and clue. it's a word that I've seen often. Many times. No clue what that yep. means. All right. Okay. What do well, you have, Rick? This is the other end of the scale, um, which is the, you know, the, the, the over, over everything, <laughs> which, which really says nothing. A period of cold maceration for seven days ensured maximum retention of primary f- and food flavors. Oh, I got to say, that, by the way, the guy never actually says what the wine is. A period of cold maceration for seven days ensured maximum retention of primary fruit flavors and color extraction. Fermentation was in stainless steel with long maceration periods of 40 days. The wine was aged in French oak barrels for 10 months. It scored a 94 platinum medal in the winemaker's challenge. They said Carmenere from Chile makes itself known in the glass more than any of the red wine on the earth. Nice and savory, core of spice, very unique character. Okay. Okay, so we could have taken out, like, all of that. If, we, if my <laughs> English teacher were editing that, it would be down to about four words right now. Right. Now, fair right. enough. It got a platinum medal. Okay, good. I Although tell, it doesn't tell, tell me it's what it tastes like. It does right. tell me that somebody thought it was good. I love the fact that Carmenere from Chile makes itself known in the glass. Does it raise its hand and go, you yes, boys yes. over here? Well, yes, more than any other red wine. So it, what it does actually has a little, little a name tag. Does, Hello, oh, my name that's is Carmen. It, the yeah. name tag. Hello, <laughs> like at the conventions. Where yes. it says, Hi. Yes. My name is. That's exactly right. A little tag, and underneath <laughs> it says, "Call me Carmen." Call me Carmen. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and then and then the only description is nice and savory, core of spice, restrained fruit. But it doesn't say what spice, yeah, what fruit, there, there's what There's one anything. other term in here that my English teacher would go nuts over. Very unique character. Yeah. Which, because you know what, unique means one of a kind. So very you can't unique. be very unique. well. It's a it's you can a, either be unique or one, you can't one be of a unique, one of a kind. But you can't be very unique. Yes. Well, or really sell wine. Talking this back way. to high school kids. All right. 
Okay, what else you got? Back to high school. Well, uh, we are taking a very, 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 very unique break. Um, <laughs> actually, a tiny short break, and when we come back, we will have some history for you. Cool. Stay with us. to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. You know what's unique about those trumpets? They're so constant. I just want to salute every time <laughs> I hear these guys. They are great. They are great. Yeah. Thanks, yep. thanks for coming in, boys. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. We have history, uh, historic history moment uh, this week. Paul, what is yours? Well, um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about Napoleon. Ah. Um, the Napoleonic it's Wars. It's going to be a short <laughs> Oh, no, very good. No. Yes, he's going to play it close to the I can say that, by the way. Not being a tall man myself, <laughs> That's I right. can get away with it. Um, but as you know, those wars were between primarily England and France, um, early 1800s. And, of course, it affected the wine trade in a big way because a huge amount of the wine produced in France was sold in England. And when you go back and look at some of the most famous chateaus in Bordeaux, many of them have names that indicate that there was an English heritage as well. Mm. So those wars really created some problems and kind of changed the face of the wine industry for a while. And if you look at wines like Lynch Bage, the Lynch is obviously a British name, uh, Leoville Barton, uh, there was a Barton that was uh, heavily involved in the wine trade. And even uh, Smith O. Lafitte, um, there's even an, uh, uh, you know, obviously Smith is English, but even Chateau Aubryon, there is a theory that Aubryon is actually a French pronunciation of O'Brien. O'Brien, I have heard that. And, and uh, the, um, among the other things in, in Britain's war with France was they looked other places for wine. Yes, they did. So they, among other things, that helped bolster uh, the port industry and Spain's wine. Really created port, and it also created um, Marsala as another wine that uh, um, grew out of the Napoleonic Wars. Right. Uh, Well, I go back, my uh, history moment, a little little smaller, but it's also back to Napoleon. Good. And the Battle of Waterloo. Uh Uh-huh. 1815. He lost. He lost. He was fleeing, fleeing. And he wasn't fleeing well because the those a lot of soldiers were fleeing too. <laughs> he had company. So so he jumped. He he left his carriage on by the side of the road. Is is in Belgium, uh-huh. and uh, and jumped on a horse. And the Prussians there. This uh, Prussians were involved in this war. Yes, this they battle, were. And they they uh, found the carriage not long afterwards. They actually put it under guard because it's Napoleon's carriage. Mm. And uh, in a description of the carriage, and I love this because apparently Napoleon traveled well or was a very large carriage. You would expect. You would think. He's Napoleon. Yes. So this is a description of the interior of this remarkable carriage, as Mm -hmm, they say. mm -hmm. deserves particular attention for it's adapted to the various purposes of an office, a bedroom, a dressing room, a kitchen, and an eating room. (laughs) It must have Sounds been a, like very a stretch large. limo to me. Yeah, um, they, they found a liquor case, including two bottles. One of them still had rum, uh, and the other contained what they considered some fine old Malaga wine, which is a sweet fortified wine, right. like a sherry. Right. Uh, um, that carriage bounced around in London and for a while, and it was destroyed in a fire in 1925. However, the wine, one of those bottles of wine, just went up for auction. Mm. Uh, it was described as this was not. Not a fake because this one actually was followed. We've we've done many uh, stories on fake fake wines. Uh, yeah, that's this right. This one, but it had bared, it had the seal of Napoleon's 
personal cipher, which is a crowned N in a laurel reef. But this is this one actually they they could document yeah, how, yeah. where it was. It goes dates back to 1810. It was unopened, although it was eight inches uh, below the level of the cork because uh, there was some. Uh, and uh, the, oh, wow! Which, uh, so it, yeah. I mean, if you figure that a bottle of wine's r- roughly twelve inches, the fact that the wine is down eight yeah. inches from the top means there's not a lot of wine left. Yeah, I don't think you're buying it for drinking. You're not buying it for drinking, yeah. no. Yeah. So it's sold for um, about twenty thousand pounds, which is thirty-one thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, but imagine if it had been full. Well, imagine if it had been a hat. Because at the same auction, Napoleon's hat sold for 386 pounds, which is about $600,000. Wow. And a year ago, actually, one of his hats sold for $2.4 million. You should auction one of your hats. Huh, I, 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 I try you... that all the time. They, um, they, don't, uh, they, don't, they don't sell so well. <laughs> they, uh, um, all right. Maybe if you put an N on them. Oh, I should try that. Uh, with a laurel wreath. I could be mistaken size-wise. Uh, Change your name from Rick to Nick. Yeah, but you know, somebody would Google me, and they would they would uh, they would figure out that I'm not Napoleon. And <laughs> not then, Napoleon. There you go. <laughs> Speaking of Google, and how bad is this transition? <laughs> we right. we have, as you know, I am one to do. I'm always digging up little data and studies, and this is some data from Google Docs. Good. Excuse me, Google Data, and this is what they say. Fifty-nine percent of millennials, twenty for them, they define that as twenty-five to thirty-four-year-olds. Yeah, pretty close. They head yeah. head into the kitchen to cook. They bring their smartphone or a tablet. Yes. So they're so sure. you know it's you know one of my very good friends who is has had actually a couple of James Beard award-winning uh, cookbooks and yeah. is a terrific cook, but she's more in our age group. You know, always talks about um, one of the really smart things to do when you're cooking is to print out your recipes and tape them at eye level. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that they're right there so that you're not always looking around now, at the book. And now, we should explain that this Google data study says that they took their tablets and smartphones into the kitchen to help them cook. Yes. Because these people take their smartphones and tablets Everywhere into the bathroom. To help. And it's not to help them go to the bathroom. Well, okay. I don't okay. even want to—that's that's a discussion but we're going to move they, right past. <laughs> they, they have their tablets and smartphone with them every waking moment of the day. Yeah. But they're actually using them to cook. They're using them to cook. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and and um, the interesting thing too, they also said so. This is this is uh, people over thirty five actually are more likely to print out their recipes right. according to, to Google data. Right. Um, but they also said that YouTube, YouTube recipes yes. um, were up forty nine percent year to year yeah. from two thousand. This is going back yeah. to two thousand fourteen because their yeah. study is a year old on that. But, but this makes sense to me. This makes a huge amount of sense. My grandmother was someone who cooked, and when she wrote down her recipes, she would say, "Put in a little bit of butter." Yeah. And my mom, who was trying to write this down, said, Mom, you can't say a little bit. We've got to measure it. Yeah. When you see it on YouTube, you actually see what's happening. You see what it's supposed to look like. You actually get a sense of how it's supposed well, to work. You don't just follow. And and we have this expression in English, follow the recipe blindly. Well, now you've got visuals to help you. I think it says something else, too. I think it says that th- this is a generation of visual learners, too. Well, sort of them. It's comfortable. I've actually used YouTube once. I had a camera that that had a had a mechanical problem, and and, you went to YouTube to fix it. And I went on YouTube, and there was a German guy who did the whole who did the repair, and he showed you exactly Uh, how to do every step. And you know what? It worked. And I gotta say, I'm sold. uh, I'm just looking for cat videos now. (laughs) Now, what we need 
is a YouTube video that will show you how to drink wine. There you go. You pour it into your mouth, <laughs> and then oh, you swallow. There, there are See, people that do, do that. They sit in front of a camera and tell you everything <laughs> they smell, and then you want to shoot yourself. Um, <laughs> no, first you want to shoot them, then you want to shoot yourself. Yes, it. Uh, uh, it you know, and but the other thing that uh, the, the Google data de- they deducted from the Google data, which I think is absolutely accurate, knowing my my nieces and my younger friends, yeah. Yeah. which is that they enjoy the process and that you know it, it's part of the you know like cooking is such an exploration, but the majority of the, when they were polled by Google data yeah. said that they are satisfied doing it even if the recipe didn't come out perfect even if the, what they made sure. wasn't great they that for them they were happy to do sure. that sure it's like when you were a little kid and you planted a few carrots in the garden it, even if they didn't turn out to be great they were your carrots yeah that's a good thing. Yeah, and the extension of that is that uh, that you know we and we've seen other data that says this too. And you know, this is sorry, wine critics is that the majority of young people are just looking for apps on wine or social media comments on wine. They're not going to the level, the quote unquote authoritative people. Um, right, but they're, they're they're also willing to accept a wine as being different without necessarily defining right. it as being they, a wine with flaws. They just think it's part of the adventure. And you know what? They're right. They are entirely less dogmatic than yes. than their than their older nephews, yes. relatives, cousins, uh, knuckle-headed wine snobby people. That's right. Although I'm sure we'll find a few wine snobs, but we hope not. We hope you, you youth of the world, oh you God, are he's our gonna, hope. He's going to give us our <laughs> commencement address yes, now. You, yes, the, it, <laughs> it, it sits on your shoulders to end this snobby the reign. tyranny of wine snobbism. All right. Well, uh, speaking of ending the reign of logic, yes. we're about to take some questions when we come oh, right back. You are listening YouTube? to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Stay with us. We're listening to a bottle talk with Rick and Paul. We're going back to our mailbag, as we call it, because we're old. And by the way, if you'd like to ask us a question, uh, you can find us on iTunes or go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. If you bring your tablet or your cell phone into the bathroom, you can find us while you're on there. Although that's Paul talking. I say, let's move on. Let's move on. Our next question comes from Sonia in Huntington Beach. Mm-hmm. Kind of a fun question. She says, is wine different at different altitudes? Yes. You know, like food certainly is. She says, I have to think the cork would pop a little easier on a champagne. Well, well that's, that's certainly true, true yeah. because the the pressure in a wine bottle is about seven atmospheres, six to seven atmospheres. That means the pressure is seven times as, as powerful as the pressure of atmosphere here uh, at sea level. And so if you take it up higher, um, the pressure inside will be the same, but the pressure outside will be less, and that cork will come out ever so much easier. Might want to wear a fencing mask when you open a sparkling wine bottle. You know, I do all the time anyway. (laughs) Yes, just safe for that one. And mittens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I have a cat, and it's it's just – it's always it's always better that way. But, but uh, let's talk about the question of altitude because it's a re- – as you know, Rick, I love backpacking. I love spending time up at high I elevation in the mountains. Um, but one of the things that you have to understand about the – it's not the wine that changes, but it's the air around it. When you are smelling things, what you are smelling are the molecules from the wine that are carried to your nose by the air. When you're at high altitude, there's less air which means it carries, excuse me, less flavor, less aroma 
to your nose. Airlines know this. It's it's one of the reasons that people oh, yeah. say airlines food tastes bad. It's not the food isn't that bad. We need to do an entire segment on uh, <laughs> airlines and and choosing wines. And uh, right. uh, uh, had a very lovely conversation with Andrea Robinson, who chooses right. one who for um, wines for airlines. Yeah, and she was talking about how she has to she has to go for much larger flavors. Yes, but you know, so it's she's looking for balance at a at a larger at a larger volume. A larger volume. Yeah. Right? it's like as if they turn the sound up. Yeah, and so what happens is as you get up in these higher elevations, you smell things and not as much aroma. Comes Comes to your nose because there's not enough of those air molecules carrying it back and forth, and things don't taste as intensely as they do on the ground. And remember that 85% of taste is smell, including right. after you swallow, you still still have actual olfactory right. glands that are working, that are that are picking up odors that are adding to this flavor. And so if things are not drifting up so so quickly, yep. or um, you're that, not you're not tasting them. Yeah. So what yep. what that means is probably the same thing is that you know if you do go up to higher altitude, uh, you know you're if you have some really light, delicate wines that you love, you might not love them quite as much. They probably won't have as much flavor. Yes, go for nothing. Some, will have as much. I, flavor. I think you, you would probably like a wine that would fit uh, could be described as a Rick and Paul wine, which is loud and <laughs> no and sloppy. <laughs> that would yeah, you don't want it sloppy. <laughs> All right, our next question comes from Anna Guerrero in Mill Valley. Hmm. She says, "Well, this is sort of a connection in a way." She says, "How oh, this gets good? How important <laughs> is it to swirl your wine?" Here's why I'm asking. We were at dinner at some friend's house, and they at least pretended to like the wine we brought. It was a kind of expensive Cabernet. Hmm. My friend's husband swirled and swirled his glass before he tasted it. Then he kept swirling and swirling. He also Good. kept smelling it and pretending to smell these weird flavors like alder and hibiscus. I mean, seriously? <laughs> My husband was trying to look agreeable, and he swirled and swirled and got wine on their carpet. <laughs> so, is swirling worth the risk, and what do you do with the guy naming obscure smells? Wow, what a great story, <laughs> Anna. <laughs> I already... Go your husband. He did exactly the right thing. <laughs> no, first, first of all, Anna, send us more questions. This is really good stuff. Um, and I loved alder and hibiscus because those are two things. And I think, you know what? I have rarely heard those I'm, used as wine yeah. descriptors. That's classic. I'm waiting for somebody to pick out camellia, which doesn't uh-huh. have a smell. Right. But, right. You know, yeah. I'm getting a hint of camellia. Um, <laughs> Uh, first, okay, we're going to talk about this guy in a second. All right, so let's go to the swirling part. <laughs> okay, the swirling. The part. swirling part was actually connects to the earlier question about indeed. smell, and so there is a reason to swirl. It just it, you know the wine it does a lot of things. One, it increases the, the speed of evaporation. It actually coats the glass with wine, so that evaporates. So there's more of the wine exposed to the air, right. which means more evaporates. More, so more you can smells smell are more. floating out. Right, you can yeah. smell more. So there's a reason to do that, and it's kind of fun. Uh, yeah, and you know, but you don't need you, to swirl and swirl and swirl and you swirl. You know, you're neurotic about it when you start swirling the water in your glass. Yes, well, it, it's you, it's something of a bad habit, but yeah, yeah, that's um, and that that is something that uh, you know, actually, you know, because you and I judge often, and you know that what happens is you've been swirling and tasting wine for hours, and you go to lunch, and you and you, you have sw- a glass of iced tea, and you start swirling. Right, it and I've swirled it. my yeah. beer. That's never a pretty sight, <laughs> uh, but. Um, uh, so yeah, swirling swirling is a is it really is a, a nice way to open up the wine just to help smell it. It is a thing. Having said that, yes, you can overdo it. And 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 I, having said that, practice. Yeah, yeah. Now, now it's, true. it's funny when I, I have been in Argentina and in good restaurants in Argentina, 
when they pour the the host of the table, the man who orders the wine, when they and it's a man uh, in Argentina, when they pour the wine for you, that little sample in the glass, the waiter puts the glass on the table and then swirls it on the table for you. Because he doesn't trust you to do it yourself. Well, that's actually the key right there is, is put it on the table and swirl it. Don't pick it up and swirl if it If you air, put right. it on the table and swirl it, it actually is safer. Yes. Um, but the other thing is you can swirl your wine in your mouth and achieve pretty much the same results. Just swish it around your mouth and you'll get pretty much the same results. Or swirl no. your head. Swirl Just kind of make these <laughs> hula moves. That's right. <laughs> yes. That's right. Do the hokey pokey. <laughs> now, um, I, my friend Tim Gazer, who's a master sommelier, also points out that it is important when you are smelling wine, if you really want to smell everything in the wine, to smell it first before you've swirled it. Because yeah, yeah. it smells differently yeah. uh, depending on whether you've swirled it or not. And, and it's a nice little touch. It, and, and in this case, it would have been a nice little touch to say, you know, I always like to smell it first without swirling it because you get those delicate flavors and then you can swirl it. And that would have immediately put this guy right. in his place. Well, then this guy, what he's doing is there's way too many like YouTube videos speaking of YouTube videos yes. out there that where, on how to do this where people smell a wine and and then and talk about it as they as they are smelling and, and on camera it is seriously the single most boring piece of video you could possibly <laughs> imagine if yeah. you stuck a video and aim a camera and aimed it at a wall <laughs> it would be more exciting it, it, these guys think yeah. that they're doing something when they're doing that and right. it's, it's just a really it's a really dumb dumb thing to do and it is and so when somebody does that oh, uh, quote Hugh Johnson quote Hugh Johnson smells like wine Hugh Johnson, one of the world's great experts on wine, master of wine, author of the World Atlas of Wine. Nobody knows more about wine than Hugh Johnson. And Hugh Johnson says, it's not a bloody fruit cocktail. Yeah. It smells like wine. And don't say it as if you thought of that. Every Say it when the guy is swirling on it and he says, you know, every time I see somebody do that, I'm reminded of Hugh Johnson who says, it's well, not a bloody fruit cocktail. It just smells like wine. Oh, you could be even better about it. You go, you know what Hugh Johnson says about it, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and then he goes. And then let him lead, lead him into it and then smack him with yeah. it. Yeah. Um, the other thing you can also do is uh, you can say um, that, uh, uh, what's hibiscus smell like? Right. Uh, you know, really, right. alder. Do you mean the the white hibiscus or the purple hibiscus? Yes, and and how how is alder different from from, from pine and That's oak? Right. From, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Know, really, because I wasn't getting any of that. I wasn't and, getting the alder. To yeah. me, it was more like a sort of a a sweet willow character. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's what you do. You you make that person suffer. Shut up. All right, all right. That's a good one, Anna. That was a great question. And then all yes. that it's going to finish up our questions, so we can get to our food pairing when we come right back. Okay. That was a great question, Anna, and uh, I think that should do it for our questions. It's great. just too good to follow. When we come right back, we are going to have a food pairing for you. Stay with us. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Brick and Paul. Time for our food and wine pairing. And since Anna had such a great question, we are using her, and we're going backwards. We're going to pair food with Anna's big old Cabernet that she brought. You mean the one that her husband spilled on the carpet? Yes, but apparently it was delicious. <laughs> and it had alder and hibiscus. Alder and, and hibiscus, yeah. Uh, frankly, if it had alder and hibiscus... And it wasn't very good. I'm not yeah. liking it. But it had camellia. 
But I do think that a big Cabernet for me says lamb chops. Lamb chops. And I want the lamb chops. I don't want the formal lamb chops in the white tablecloth dinner where you have to eat them with a knife and fork. I want the lamb chops where you pick them up with your hands and you just gnaw the meat off the bones and you drink the Cabernet and you're happy. See, I was going with a big steak. Of course you were. But the same steak that you can pick up with your hands. Just a <laughs> just a, a giant fillet. Just no. Right. It is, you know, and with Cab, Cab is at, at its classic parent. And it, the reason is because cab is this, you know, these big, slightly tannic wise meat. It's got some edges to it. It's yep. a little sparkling in the yep. mouth. And so the fat in a good meat always sort of uh, softens up the tannins. Yes, right. It all works together. It's right. a pretty nice combination. Although I will say this, and although it's a certain kind of burger, mm-hmm. you know, I've you've heard me sure. talk yeah. about the other direction of burgers, yep. but yep. I had a spectacular pairing of just a simple burger. I didn't have a pickle on it. I didn't have ketchup. Ketchup. It was so it was mustard. But blue and, cheese and bacon. Well, oh yeah, that's oh that's, yeah 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 yeah. Okay, I'm hungry. Of course, what isn't good with blue cheese and bacon? There you go. And really, any kind of red wine, you got it. (laughs) All righty. That is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Bassini. Thanks, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studios. If you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer on the show, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, and look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe for free. If you learned anything today, we hope it's this. Sulfites don't give you headaches. But listening to us might. Absolutely. I'm Rick Cushman. (laughs) I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.